And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 52. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, we're getting into that second half of our 50 part already. Two episodes in, getting towards the 100 now. <laughs> yeah, you know, 50 was a good podcast episode. A lot of people I know like the idea of us listening to GOAT. So, I mean, I don't know what we're going to do for 100, but we have about, what, 48 more episodes, if my math is correct, to figure it out. So, yeah. I think we'll be fine. Future Nick and Jose problems. Yeah. But what we do have for this episode is we are heading towards Game 3 in the NBA Finals, and that's where we'll begin with this podcast. The Toronto Raptors and the Golden State Warriors. The series is tied 1-1. to Toronto took the first game. Golden State just, after not playing for 10 days, looked sluggish, played sluggish, but needed a... 20-0 run in the third quarter and late in that game as well to get the win over Toronto. Trey Thompson left the game early due to an injury. DeMarcus Cousins is back. Durant's still hurt at the moment, but so far, what's your take after two games of this series? Well, I, I you know, after the two games, I feel like we actually have a legit series on our hand. I mean, going into our finals podcast, you heard me sit here and say it was hard to see the Raptors winning more than one game in this series. And I was basically making fun of people giving the Raptors a chance, saying that they're going to win the whole thing. Um, I still don't think the Raptors are going to win the entire finals, but I do think the Raptors have actually made this a series, though. And and they're making the Warriors work. Um, You know, game one, Kawhi does his thing, but then you have guys like Spicy P, Pedro, uh, um, Pascal Siakam. You know, he goes off for 20-plus points. Um, and, and this is what, are, you know, a lot of people talk about will the Warriors ever get beaten. And yes, granted, they have injuries, right? They're missing Durant for games one and two. Uh, Thompson's now hurt. But we always ask, what will it take to beat the Warriors? And, you know, LeBron James couldn't do it. Well, what it takes is a team playing as one unit. And that's really what the Raptors do differently than most of the teams that LeBron James has been on in the past going up against the Warriors. Because a lot of time, it's just LeBron James by himself going at it. You know, Kyrie Irving you know, by himself making his own plays. But what you really need is like a team basketball concept. And I just think the Raptors are playing like a well, you know, oiled machine here where Kawhi's dropping 30, but yet Siakam's doing his part. Gasol is rebounding the hell out of the basketball. When's the last time Marcus Gasol had a great game like he did in game one? You know, Van Fleet is having a great game. He's stealing the ball away from Curry. They're playing good defense, you know? So the Raptors are doing everything right. And, you know, yes, the Warriors needed a 20-0 run yesterday, but for a good portion of that game, again, the Raptors had the Warriors locked up on defense, had them sweating a little bit. So my biggest takeaway is that I think there, I think I may have misjudged the Raptors coming into this series. I do think that, you know, they made this a series. I think the Raptors can definitely win more than one game at this point. I still am not convinced that the Raptors are going to win the entire thing. But I do think the Raptors, honestly, my biggest takeaway is that the Raptors have been the biggest threat so far to the Warriors within these five years that they've been in the finals. Granted, that maybe because the Warriors are not fully healthy, but I also think it's because this is the best team that's been playing against the Warriors in the finals over the past couple of years. Yeah, I had the Warriors winning in sits. I figured the Raptors were going to be able to take two of their home games. Uh this series right now, I think, is on pace of what it was supposed to be. Game one, you know, Vegas has had the Raptors as the favorite the first two games. I was a little surprised to see them favorited in game two. 
Uh, I regret not taking that one, and I was debating on it all day. Uh, but I think part of it was sleeping that I didn't. Uh, but you look at it and say, okay, well, why did the Raptors win game one? This was the best passing unit that the Warriors have seen all year long. This is a very bit veteran team. This is a very lengthy team. And this is a team that everybody had career nights. Mark Gasol, best game as a Raptor. Piet Siakam, his best game of the playoffs. Kawhi didn't have, you know, the best game ever. But everyone around him just had a great night. On top of that, Warriors shot terrible. Added to the fact of the matter is 10 days off. And they looked like they played and they haven't played in 10 days. Whereas, what are the Raptors constantly doing? They're constantly playing. They're in the big games. They're they're not. They were never on cruise control, like the Warriors have been. Once the Warriors got past the Rockets, they've been on cruise control this entire time. And watching Game One, this is the fourth quarter. They're down by ten. It's early on. This was the calmest team I've ever seen. Down ten, entering the fourth quarter. Everybody relaxed. Everybody still smiles. Everybody's still calm as can be. No worries and no fear at all because the fact of the matter is they came back half the time against Portland down more than that. So they lose game one. They, I was surprised to see the Warriors start off as bad as they did in that first half, but it was just a matter of time before the Warriors got going. It was a matter of time before Steph Curry started hitting his jump shots. Sure enough, they get a run. They feed in the series. I have the Raptors winning one more game in this series, and I expect it to be Game 5 back in Toronto just because of the intensity of that crowd, that home stadium, and just how well Toronto plays at home compared to on the road. They've been a little bit more questionable in the playoffs. Uh, The only concern at this point is you know, Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson. And whether or not either one of them will play Game 3, there's a possibility both of them could be playing in Game 3. There's a possibility both of them could miss Game 3 or miss the series. Uh, Jose, if Durant and Clay Thompson can't return, let's say for Game 3 and on, do you like the Raptors at that point or you still liking the Warriors no at that point I do uh, I you know I still pick the Warriors but I think at that point you might be looking at a seven game series right if Durant and Thompson miss long term I mean you're talking about two two major pieces of the Warriors scoring system and yes give credit to Iguodala he steps up when it matters the most great but you know when you lose Durant you still have that awesome backcourt of Thompson and Curry who are constantly shooting. We're in a shooting league. You need shooters on your team to succeed. So if you miss Durant, fine, sure, you can survive. But when you're talking about missing Durant and Thompson, now the primary scorer is Steph Curry. And what do you do? You double-team Curry. And at that point, it's easier to guard one shooter like Steph Curry when you're missing the other two as opposed to guarding all three of them or at least two out of the three when one is just missing. And yes, DeMarcus Cousins is back in the lineup now. DeMarcus Cousins looked good for his first game back yesterday. But I also think it's very unfair 
to expect DeMarcus Cousins to all of a sudden just break out now and drop 30 points in a game with 20 rebounds, you know, to make up for the fact that Thompson's not there. I think it's a little unfair to ask a guy like Draymond Green to go out there and drop a triple-double when his primary focus is trying to lock down players like Kawhi Leonard or some of these other rotating players like Siakam. And again, just a lot of moving pieces to this Raptors offense. Draymond Green needs to be focused on defense at that point. So I feel like when you take out Thompson at an equation, add it to the injury with Durant, we might have a major problem for the Warriors because, again, that's two of their major scoring options. I mean, you do the math. If you have three awesome shooters and you're missing one, at least you still have the other two. You take out the other one now, and Steph Curry is by himself. It makes him an easier target to guard. Um, and I just think it makes it a little bit easier for the Raptors on defense if you're missing Thompson as well, too. Now, I still favor the Warriors. I think they're the better overall team. But I think if Thompson and Durant are, are going to be out long term, we're looking at maybe a seven-game series between the two. Yeah, I know Cousin's stats line. Uh, 11 points doesn't seem like much. But the fact is, you know, 11 points, 10 rebounds, 6 assists. And he did so in 27 minutes. I mean, this this guy put up like, you know, an actual scoreboard type night, even if the scoring's not really there for Cousins. He did so with the double-double and, you know, half the amount of time that most of these guys are playing in the games. When Curry and Draymond Green are playing 40 minutes and you've got Cousins just sitting there with 27. Uh, so you expect Cousins, and for the most part of this offense, I know Draymond Green at 17 points, but outside of the four guys we're talking about of their pure starters, nobody had double figures. Thompson led the team in scoring with 25. He had the best you know, three-point shooting night going four for six. It's a huge scoring part. Cousins is back, and that's a key role because he was able to keep the team when they were down by 10, 12 points. It was him that was making the shots to try and keep them from not falling behind any further. He was able to get to the foul line a couple times, hit some foul shots. He hit a big three-pointer to cut the lead, and it was able for the Warriors to finish the first half not really down so much as they were in the first game of the series. They they were only down five points. They could have easily been down 12 if it wasn't for Cousins who was putting a couple of big shots and then we saw Curry at the very end getting some more in. Uh, but if the Warriors don't have Thompson and Durant for game three, I, this is going to be a very challenging night for the Warriors at that point. Their, their offense re- solely relies on these guys getting open, shooting the three, passing the ball around. But if you're cutting off a lot of their offensive pieces without Durant, without Clay Thompson, it's going to be extremely hard for Curry and Cousins, who's really still trying to get back to NBA form. It's really tough to do in an NBA Finals when you expect him to try and go out there and play 40 minutes. I certainly think he's going to put up closer to 30 to maybe 35 minutes, and I think that would be a large amount for Cousins as an increased workload. I mean, and it's not like he's also paired up against a slob. I mean, he's paired up against Marc Gasol. I mean, Marc Gasol, you know, he's definitely on a decline of his career, but Marc Gasol is still a great center in the NBA, and so... 
when you're matched up against Gasol, that's not exactly an easy thing to do either. And these guys were banging around. There was a lot of times you saw DeMarcus Cousins hit the floor, Mark Gasol hit the floor. These guys yeah. were battling, battling. These are two of the most physical centers, two of the most old-school centers we still have in the NBA. And that still takes a lot out of you, especially if you're a guy that who's still trying to return, so to speak. He's still trying to go up and down the courts get it, and get the flow going as much. And you're still you're banning around with one of the tougher centers in Mark Gasol. I. Uh, it's going to be tough if the Warriors don't have either Durant or Clay Thompson in the game. If they can get a little bit of time from either one of them, which I think is a high possibility the way Steve Kerr is playing his team. We see practically every Warrior playing, and it's like, who are you out on the court in the NBA Finals at times? I don't recognize you as a starting lineup guy. And that's what it is right now for the Warriors. They're just playing everybody. So I think the limited minutes is a high possibility uh, that we saw that with Cousins his first game. He played like four minutes. Uh, the crazy stat on him, he's the first John Calipari uh, Kentucky player to make the finals. Yeah, that's mind-blowing, honestly. Yeah, that, if you that, think about a lot of players who came through Kentucky. I mean, it kind of made sense if you say, well, all the top Kentucky players go to really crappy teams. This is true. <laughs> and it's only been like the Warriors and LeBron in the finals recently. But like, really, I never would have expected that stat to be around. But also, Nick, I, I, I also question, you know, we, we spoke about how Cousins had the minutes limit. If Durant is ready to go in game three, I mean, I can't possibly see Durant going out there playing 40 plus minutes. No, this would easily, I think, be a minutes limit on Kevin Durant. And I think one of the other things, so to speak, on Cousins, I don't know if there's a minutes limit, so to speak, but I think there's a foul limit. And that's what I, that's sort of a challenge for Cousins. And that's not to say, oh, he fouls everybody. It's to say... No, he just plays really physical. Yeah, and on top of that, sometimes you can be a, a step behind when you're coming back into form. There's a lot of games where you, especially when he first came back, he was in very quick foul trouble often in the regular season with the Warriors. Why? Because you just, you can't get that extra foot back immediately and that results in you fouling a little bit more often. So that's his main struggle. I think he's going to have to try and be a bit less aggressive. That way he can stay on the court more. Does any of your predictions change right now with how you've seen the first two games, or it's going to be health that really determines that? Well, I do think health is going to play a major factor in terms of how long this series is going to last. Um, but and honestly, it also depends, you know, who's available for Game Three. If KD is back and you know back in time for K three, which for game, game Three, which is a possibility, even if he's on a minutes restriction, if KD can come back for Game Three then I still think the Warriors are in good shape to wrap this up in five games. However, um, if he doesn't go in Game 3, and I'm assuming Thompson's out for Game 3, right? Because that did not look pretty. Him hobbling around did not look pretty. I have a hard time you know, imagining Steve Kerr rushing him out there if Thompson's not 100%. Um, I don't think Steve Kerr is the kind of coach that would do that to his player, especially one that's pending free agency um, in terms of the interest of the player. But... Based off of how the Raptors played in Game 1 and how they almost beat the Warriors in Game 2, I will say, although I'm sticking to my prediction, I think the Warriors in 5, 
I could see the Raptors winning one more game like you. Um, and then depending on health, really depending on health, if Thompson or KD is out for the long haul, if both of them are out for the long haul, I think we could be looking at a seven-game series. Yeah, if both Durant and Thompson are, are out for game three, we don't know about further on it from there. But if they're both out game three, this is the must-steal road game. For, and you only got to steal one road you, game. You only got to – basically, the Raptors can win all the games at home. They pra- they almost did last night. Um, and I was the same way with Milwaukee. You just got to win one. And that, that can change the series right there. Uh, so th- this becomes the game three, the must-win road game for the Raptors if, you know, Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant aren't there. You have to take advantage of that by all means. Uh, you know, with this, I just have to ask, and it's and I hate this question, but there comes a point where, you know, maybe this made sense. Is the NBA season too long? When you look at it, especially when you take the Warriors, Andre Trudeau is banged up. Clay Thompson just went down. Durant has gone down. Uh, Curry, we've seen banged up this year as well. And obviously, DeMarcus Cousins is hurt every season. But we can expand this further. We see this with Chris Paul most of the time. We see this right now with Kawhi Leonard. He is certainly banged up. And, And there's a list of NBA players that we can continue on with this. But for playoff teams in the finals... So many of these guys are hurt. So many of these are guys are banged up. And I get it. A lot of that can be because the playoffs are long. But for a lot of these guys, they've been in the playoffs multiple years in a row. And regular seasons can be endless at times. LeBron played every game last season. And he was like the only player to play 82 games last year. Does the NBA need to consider the idea of shortening schedules when they already have considered ideas like no back-to-back road games where you have to travel out at uh, X, Y, and Z far away? Usually there's a home game mixed in with these back-to-back days. So the NBA is already considering that, but do they have to consider a shortening schedule? And well, since- I think... I think when you when you talk about things like this, and this is something that we're not just seeing in basketball, right? We're seeing it in baseball too, um, about whether should it be less than 162. I think what you need to ask yourself here, though, if you're the league, is how can we make changes and still, and how can we get better quality basketball? And like you said, they already have some ideas of not no back to back road games and all this other stuff. So I'm okay with baby steps and seeing if this works. If that doesn't work, then I do think they should look to shorten the season. A uh, couple points why. One, the playoffs are a really long format. And you know, and I've been in favor of shortening that first round, Nick. I don't like the fact that it you have to it takes a seven game series for the first seed to beat the eighth seed. And yes, I know sometimes the eighth seed can have an upset, but some most of the time, nine times out of ten, I don't need a seven game series to tell me that the first seed is gonna obliterate the eight seed playing. And I feel like, I mean, the playoffs started in April and we're in June. And, you know, when this finals is over, if it does go seven games, we're talking about mid-June. So we're talking about mid-April to mid-June, a span of two months to conclude the playoffs. That's a very long time. So I think 
I would look at the playoffs, honestly, and say maybe we need to shorten a series here, maybe the first two series or maybe just the first series to kind of shorten the playoffs so these guys are fresher. But I also would be in favor of shortening the season in general, too. I mean, and what it comes down to, Nick, is I'm no expert, right? I'm not an athlete on the court. I'm not playing. I'm not playing these 82 games. What they should do is ask the players. Do the players feel like they'd be more fresh come playoff time if they played less games? And I, and you know what? If you if you sincerely ask the players, they will give you an honest answer. I don't, you know, a lot of these guys are game, right? If you ask them right now, hey, you want to come out of the game because you're hurt? They're gonna be like, no way, I want to win. But if you go up to LeBron James or if you go up to Kawhi Leonard and say, hey, do you think, you know, if we shorten the season, that'd be better for you in the long haul? You think you'd feel better at this point? I guarantee you, Nick. No player is going to lie about it. Every player will give you an honest answer, and almost every player will say, you know what, we probably could all benefit from a shorter season because what it leads to is better playoff basketball and what it leads to is better quality basketball. No one wants to see a basketball finals where everybody's running ragged around or if Kawhi was too banged up to play. No one wants to watch the Warriors beat up on a Kawhi-less Raptors, right? No one wants to know that man, the Raptors didn't have a chance because their star player didn't make it all the way to the end. So if it means better quality basketball, I think the league should be at least considering it. And on top of that, though, how many times in a regular season do we see players sit and just take the night off? And that doesn't mean like they're not shooting. That means literally they're just in jacket, ties sometimes, and just watching. Why? Because it's just a scheduled day off for them. So most players are probably playing, if they're fully healthy for an entire season, what, 75 games they're starting? Maybe 72, 70? So they're already cutting out 7 to 12 games. And I'm not saying we have to cut it down to 50. I'm not saying we have to cut it down. But maybe 70 is a good number that we cut it down to. 12 games. You cut it down a little bit. And the result is the NBA regular season ends a little bit early. The playoffs don't end two to three weeks before free agency begins at that uh, point. Uh, you're able to have a longer time off instead of, you know, it's going to end mid-June. And what, preseason started in like September, October, some of these guys play in summer leagues, especially a lot of rookies. So can we imagine, like, not to say a rookie can't handle this, but a guy like an R.J. Barrett or a Zion Williamson uh, could easily be playing in the summer league, then play some preseason, then play the regular season, then make the playoffs, and then make a deep run in the playoffs, and it's, what, the entire year for them. And again, it's not saying a young kid's body can't handle that, but we're also talking about college basketball is only like 30 games or so. We're nearly, we're tripling already on just the regular season and if they make the playoffs. So on top of that, then like summer leads and preseason, it's it's insane on how much they're going on a significant jump. And that's what can be already a huge toll on somebody, even a young rookie that's just coming into the league and not like an older veteran that we're seeing a lot more times banged up. I don't know if they're going to make that change, but I think the NBA certainly 
should be considering it. Uh, we hear what the MLB talked about the idea the same way, shortening the regular season a little bit, but maybe lengthening the playoffs instead of a one-game wild card, possibly a three-game series. But into doing that, they would sacrifice a couple games from the regular season. The NFL is the same way. How many years have we heard there should be 20 regular season games? And what's the first thing that gets swiped from that? Preseason. Because no NBA uh, NFL player is going to do four weeks of preseason, 20 weeks of the regular season, and then another four weeks of the playoffs. Their bodies just can't handle that. They, they would have to cut it down somewhere. They'd cut down the preseason immediately for that. So everything has like a little bit of a sacrifice to it, but the NBA seems to be adding more things at times. The Olympics is more of an NBA's part, summer leads, so... The NBA certainly has to consider some of that changes. With that, we're still going to talk about a little bit, but college level. R.J. Hampton, what was considered the number one prospect in college basketball, didn't choose Kansas, didn't choose Duke, didn't choose Texas or Kentucky. He chose New Zealand and is going overseas to play and be paid to play basketball this year. It's a little bit different than the idea of a one-and-done. It's going to be a lot more traveling for scouts, of course, but I don't think anyone cares about the scouts for that stuff. Was this the right move for him? And do you think a change is going to happen in the uh, that players should be considering this as well? Well, do I think it's the best move for him? Um, honestly, I think... It's a pretty neutral move. I'm not going to say it's better or worse. I mean, the good thing is he's going to get paid. He doesn't have to go through the whole NCAA crap um, of not getting paid and not benefiting from his product. Um, I will say I'm a little bit concerned that maybe he won't get the recognition that he would have gotten here in the States had he played in college ball overseas. Um, but honestly, if he's one of the top you know, recruits this year you know, his name will still be buzzing. And I think people will go out there still to watch him too. So he doesn't have to worry about that. Um, we definitely won't know until later on when he becomes eligible to be drafted, how it works out for him. Um, because of the fact that, you know, we'll, we'll find out if, you know, if his name is still relevant in a couple of years or a year after he's playing over there. Um, I understand his reasons for doing it. I think it's good for him. He wants to get paid. Why not? Uh, we've seen that we don't, treat you know like the european leagues any differently or we don't treat those other leagues any differently in terms of you know if we think they're a high level of standard or not we've seen plenty of players get drafted from overseas luka Doncic, chris jasper zingas um you know a lot of players get drafted from overseas now internationally so it's not like you know he's dropping from first round value uh you know down to second round um i think if he goes over there and plays well his name will still be buzzing so I think it's a pretty neutral move for him. I think the only benefit is that he's going to get paid. He's going to get a real salary. And I think, like you said, is this going to change how players feel? I think it might because for kids that want to get paid and some kids who, you know, have to get paid, you know, what, what, what doesn't get factored in is just because you're a student athlete does not mean you're also a regular kid, Nick. I mean, there's plenty of players out there. There's plenty of kids out there who have the luxury of going to school and then just not paying a dime for anything else. But there's also those group of kids out there who have to go to school, 
and also get a job in order to afford things. And, you know, some of these kids have to do that to help out their families. Not everybody's living situation is the same. Just because he's going to school for free doesn't mean his family doesn't still need help financially. So for these kids, if they can go overseas, get paid, and still help their family in other ways by getting paid, that's not a bad thing. And I think more kids should probably consider that, especially if it goes well for this young man here. And I don't think kids are going to do that right away. I think kids are going to wait and see to see what happens to his draft stock. If his name is still relevant, if he puts up great numbers, and if his name is still relevant around draft time, then I think you will see kids considering making that jump. But for now, I think kids are still going to stay with the status quo until they see that this is a working and viable option. So this is really interesting. I love this move on a player's standpoint because I think players... College athletes should be paid. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying millions. What I'm saying is a couple thousand. I think if you if you consider what they're doing as far as room, board, tuition, all that stuff, it comes out to anywhere from like twenty five to like sixty five thousand for the year. You can probably double that for what all scholarships are worth, and get the average pay for what a college player should be making all around. And I think it all should be the same. So if every kid's going, 25000 each. I don't care if you're the star or you're a role player. If you got a scholarship, you should be part of a paid athletes. Uh, but that being said, it's unlikely that will ever happen. This is great for the player for that. It's financial security. It's if you get injured and your draft stock was to fall, you've already made some money. Or if you get injured and your career and speed abruptly. You, you've already put yourself, maybe not financially secure, but financially safe. If Even if you're talking a half a million that he gets out there. That's a half a million more than he ever was going to get if he got hurt in college. And then he would be dropped from his scholarship entirely. So there, there's a lot of financial security with choosing overseas, and when you're a top prospect like Hampton, who's considered the number one high school recruit, obviously people are going out there to see him. He becomes a little bit of an inception to, like, the scouts will have to go out there and see him, of course. But on the same side, he's not a one-and-done guy anymore because he will be overseas but not in college. And I think college is struggling with the one-and-done rule. So I think this is also beneficiary for colleges on the fact that they can try and have players for multiple years, have players that you can have like, you know, a little bit more fandom to. It's going to show a little bit more seniority with them and not all freshmen. Of course, there's going to be some teams like Kentucky is always a great example and dude that go that pure freshman route, but for the most part, I think you're going to see this be an ultimate change for a lot of top prospect high school kids will choose to go overseas, trust their game, will improve enough overseas as well uh, to go forth. Uh, the biggest question mark on this entire thing, I think, will be development. And I think that, that could be a concern for you as well. Can a player develop well enough overseas 
with different coaches than on the college level. Do you think it's possible, though? You know, I do. Because, like I said, you know, this isn't like, you know, one, you know, once every five years we're getting a good player from overseas. Uh, you know, Jokic, Porzingis, Dunsik, you know, there, there's been a, quite a few, you know, so and, and, and so I feel like because there's been players in almost every draft that have come from overseas, it's definitely possible. I mean, look at the kid. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name because out of respect, I don't want to mess it up. But the kid that the, the Nets drafted last year from overseas who played valuable minutes for them, you know, so even role players like that are getting picked up. So I do think it is possible because of the fact that there's more attention now on overseas players. If this is from a couple of years ago, you know, like in the early 2000s, then this, yeah, this is a bad move, right? Because we weren't really acknowledging overseas players before. But now that especially basketball has done probably the best job at integrating the international scene into their sport, into their draft process, I think it definitely is a viable option and a doable option. And how much basketball, the NBA would never say what they would prefer. But essentially speaking, if let's just say in two years from now, the top five prospects in high school decide to go overseas and they play in different countries and maybe they play in the same leads versus each other at times. And a year later, they come back into the NBA. They not only come back into the NBA as five of the top ten pits in the draft, most likely, they come back with multiple different countries, or maybe just one country, joining the fandom of the NBA even more. Because now the NBA had kids they had. Now, now, this country, uh, now country A, B, and C had certain players play for them. They were able to see live before they made it to the NBA, and they have a new fandom team that they didn't have, so to speak, last time. It was only LeBron James. It was only Kevin Durant. It was only the top star. Now it's X, Y, and Z on prospect because they saw him play as a kid. So it, does this also help the NBA in large part creating more of a worldwide sport? You know, I think it does because it, it, is, it makes it grow globally. Um, and again, more eyes on a sport is never a bad thing. And I think the NBA won't even be too worried about, you know, losing kids to college. Or I don't think NCAA is going to be too worried about that because I always feel like you're going to have those kids who are going to want to go to college route, even though they know what's involved. You know, you're going to have your group of kids who want to go to college. They want to go to these schools. So I don't think it's going to be one of those things where everybody's going to go overseas. Um, I think I think if this works, you'll see more people go, but. I think the you know the norm will still be to go to school. You'll just have a bunch of other kids too going overseas. But I don't think anybody really has to worry about any harm being done. Yeah, outside of Zion Williamson, th- that was the real exception to college this season, and you know the fandom towards it. But besides that, like you know, college basketball was watched normally like it was the 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 you know the <laughs> the tournament's always going to get. A ton of fans and my bracket go to hell every year. So there's always going to be that consistency with it. But 
there's nothing wrong with kids choosing college on that side. On the flip side, we have the same topic when it comes to the MLB. Now, we had this conversation more when it was about Tyler Murray. Uh, Tyler Murray, and he was choosing the NFL to be the number one pick in with the Arizona Cardinals and to be the quarterback of the future for the Cardinals or to go to play minor league baseball and eventually get called up for the Oakland Athletics. And he clearly made the right choice, whether he will have a good career or not with the Cardinals. It's a more profitable choice. It's a better future choice on that part. But we also saw recently the same thing for a pitcher that was drafted eighth by the Atlanta Braves a year prior, where he's going to make his pro debut in Japan. He's choosing, again, Japan baseball, which is the equivalent to just, I would say, below the MLB, high AAA, uh, very strong levels are there at times. We see a lot of great stars come out of Japan into the MLB with a lot of success. Shohei Otani, the latest one. Seattle has another starting pitcher. The, the list can go on for that. Uh, but choosing to play in Japan over the minor leads, could this be an alternative route that MLB minor league players or top draft pits will consider in the near future? You know, this one's interesting. Um, it really did catch me by surprise, and I don't know if this is something that's going to catch on um, later on in the future. I mean, I mean, I get it. You know, the road to the majors um, is a very tedious one, and it's not exactly the most glamorous. When you're going to the minors, you don't necessarily get paid a lot of money. Um, so why not go to Japan, showcase your skills, and then maybe come back as a you know as a baseball free agent later on when your contract is up? Um, to me, this one seems a little bit. Uh, more of a risk. I mean, he's definitely getting paid the money, so I mean that's good for him. But I do have questions as to what does this mean for his future if he wants to, you know, one day play in the MLB. You know, is this is this a shortcut to the major leagues going this route? These are things that I just don't know, especially since you know a lot of the times in baseball, unlike basketball, a lot of the people do consider the Japanese leagues not on the same level as Major League Baseball. So my question is, what does this do for his value? as he you know, continues his baseball career as he goes further. Because because of the fact that the NBA looks at those Euro Leagues as like the same level as college basketball, MLB isn't, you know, a lot of MLB fans and a lot of MLB people don't look at Japanese leagues the same way as they do basketball looks at the Euro Leagues. As much as they don't look at it on the same level as the MLB, most people acknowledge Japanese baseball is still, you know, everyone has a different opinion. I, I kind of rank it AAA, AA level. Uh, certainly, I would say more towards the high AAA standards. I think there's certainly a lot of challenge when it comes to uh, Japanese baseball. Uh, the Japan League is... I think phenomenal at times. The fan base is a lot different of an environment there. But do you think there's a, going to be a struggle for this guy? Because this is just one year out of college. And th this is where the, the interesting question is because 
we've announced minor league baseball for many years. We've seen how guys struggle at times, even on the lowest of low A ball at times. And this is a kid that's going to have to go from one year, uh, maybe a dozen starts in college to what essentially would be jumping all the way to the double or triple A in the minor leagues. He's certainly betting on himself and getting the money to do so, but betting on himself to jump up on levels, I don't know he's ready to face. Does that concern you, or is that a reason why you don't think many people would go his route? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly why, because we don't know what this means for him going further. Again, it's not like basketball where... You know, he goes out there, he performs, scouts are going to look at him, they'll draft him, and then the next step is the NBA, right? We're talking about MLB, where it's a long process to get to the show. So if he goes out there and he balls out and he has great numbers, is he going to get that treatment like a Shohei or Tani or you Darvish who, you know, they come to the MLB and then get their chance right away? I don't know if he will because of his age and because of his skill – or because, like you said, because they consider Japanese leagues like the high AAA level, a team still might throw him in AAA or AA to see what he's got before eventually bringing him up. Because baseball is such a harder route to the big leagues. There's so many more hoops you have to jump through. So many more levels you have to prove yourself on. I don't know if it's a foregone conclusion that by going to Japan and upping your stats there and upping your, um, you know, upping your profile as a player there, will that actually help you? When you come back to the states, I just don't know. It, it will help you money-wise. Uh, it will certainly help you there. It will help you. But it, does uh, it help you get to the big leagues faster? No, and that's something we won't know yet until we see it happen. And therefore, I don't think players will do that because if players are going to say, "Well, you know, if I have to go through the minor league process anyways, and there's no point in doing this. Yes, I can make some extra cash." But I do think the players who still hit through the minors probably are going to get more recognition than kids who go this route. Yeah, and the the, the thing about this, this is more of a money move. Uh, this is betting on yourself and also getting financially secure. Because if you struggle in the minor leads and you can't get out of the minors, you may not be able to stay in the minors for far too long before a team just gives up on you at that point. And then your best hope is to get to Japan or get, you know, somewhere and independently. There, there, there's far less options as far as financially going. Uh, but obviously a faster route to getting to the major leagues can be, you know, being on a team, pitching in the minor leagues, dominating in the minor leagues. It's still going to take you two to three years, especially for a pitcher. But you might have a faster time than whatever your contract and rules go for the Japan style. This is not a one-and-done contract like R.J. Hampton's going to be under when it comes to basketball. This is going to be a multi-year contract where he won't probably be able to leave till he's like 23 or 24, playing a requirement amount of time, which could be the same amount of time he had to play if he was going to be in the minors. The difference is he'll be making more money, he'll be a free agent faster, he doesn't have to go under those, you know, the 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 low amount that he would make if he just made the major leads. So the, those are all advantages for him 
the challenge though is betting on yourself in in a lead where there's one minor lead system that's still probably mid high ranked you're going to have to dominate that and then get straight into you know the Japanese majors at that point and pitch extremely well if you ever want to try and get into the MLB at that point some some players are able to do it some players are not uh you know we we see a lot of players come back from Japan uh two that I can think of that are pitchers like that uh Miral Kelly of the Diamond Bats who think he was the one that struck out 10 last uh yesterday for the Diamond Bats over the Mets and Miles uh Molastus, I think his last name is, for the Cardinals. He's struggling a bit more this season. He had a great first year for the Cardinals. He's from Japan of pitching in there. But both of those guys, they did struggle in minor league baseball, had to reassert themselves in Japan to then come back into the majors. This is a total different assessment. And I'm like you, I don't think this is going to be what most players decide to do. You're just moving up in the lead too fast at the end of the day. All right. Our last real conversation for tonight on our podcast, episode 52. The Cubs, Albert Amora Jr. hit a foul ball. It hit a young girl. That was a few nights back. Uh, Over the weekend in Houston, another foul ball hit a very young fan. And there are so many times we've heard this story about young fans or fans in general getting hit by line drive foul balls, having to go to the hospital at times. And I've never been a fan of the netting, but, you know, with smartphones and how much we look down on our phones and how alert you have to be at a ball game does the MLB have to consider just going with an entire netting throughout the entire park as far as the foul line go you know I would not mind seeing it go from foul pole to foul pole if anything at least from dugout to dugout um because honestly I'm kind of sick of people saying you gotta pay attention Oh, you got to pay attention if you have kids in the stands. And yes, I mean, if you're on your phone not paying attention, that's very different. Or if you're doing something else, it's very different. But even if you are watching the game, Nick, I mean, fair balls, fair balls come off the bat at exit velocities of what, 100 plus miles per hour? Can you imagine sitting behind a dugout and a foul ball coming towards you at however many miles per hour off the bat? Baseballs come flying at you in the blink of an eye. And sometimes these world-class athletes on the field can't even react right away to line drive baseballs. Can you imagine regular civilians in the stands? How many times were we in the booth, Nick, and a foul ball came to us right off the bat, straight back, and me and you were both caught off guard about how fast it came at us? I mean, if you remember, there were a handful of times that, you know, first reaction for me and you were to move out the way because it looked like it was coming at us pretty fast. And it would hit off the wall above us. It would hit off the wall to the side. But baseballs come off the bat so fast. 
then I don't want to hear anybody say, well, you should be paying better attention. Because even if you're staring right at it, at that point, it becomes, you know, reflexes. And not everybody's reflexes are up to par. And honestly, it's not going to obstruct your view if there's an ending in a way, because the ending's mesh. You can still see. So I don't want to hear all you Twitter keyboard warriors saying, you're affecting my view. Because safety comes first. And what I don't want to see when I go to a game, I don't want to see a little girl get hurt. I don't want to see an elderly person take a foul ball off the head and know that they're not okay. Safety has to come first when we're at these kinds of events. I'm not saying you need to wrap a net around the whole field, but you can definitely do it to a point where you know, line drives tend to only reach a certain point on the foul side and just mark off the netting right there. I am totally in favor of more netting because safety has to come first for the people who are paying a lot of money to come to this ball game. Can you imagine taking your kid to a ball game, maybe their first ball game, and their first experience is them getting severely hurt with a foul ball? Not because they weren't paying attention, but the fact that the ball came flying off the bat at a high rate speed, that happens, by the way. You know, it's not just a floating foul ball that no one paid attention to that dropped from the sky. This was a line drive off the bat. Those come at you very, very fast. Even if you were paying attention, even if you had six eyes glued on the game, you still have a 50-50 chance of not even seeing that ball coming. So I'm totally in favor of it. And and especially when it comes to the young kids. Obviously, the young kids' reaction time isn't going to be the same. Um, You know, every once in a while we see a nice play, but we also every once in a while will hear these stories and and see these moments where it's, you know, fan taken to the hospital hit. And who do you rely on most when it comes to the young kids uh, for their safety? The parents. The parents not only are trying to watch the game, but they have to watch the kid. So their eyes aren't always on the game and seeing a foul ball uh, as well. There's so many reasons why this needs to change. And I don't know what the appropriate measure is on how far you have to go, whether we have to go the entire length of all of foul territory covered in a full netting, uh, as a high chance of a possibility, you know, that that may work. And that may save from a once in a while a fan grabbing a fair ball or a foul ball at times and causing a little bit of a hectic moment there as well. But you don't know how far it has to go, but certainly the MLB has to do a better job at lengthening the net. And that doesn't mean you have to go much higher. It means you have to go further out. Just just going to the dugout isn't enough. Most likely, going to the end of the infield is not far enough either. There's plenty of stat guys that are in the MLB. One of them can do a test on to see how far each line drive goes. And how much of a net you have to put in. And how far of a net you have to go. That this can be easily fitsable if the MLB wants it to be. And the MLB should at the end of the day. We shouldn't be hearing these stories. Especially, I don't know. if you Have you even seen the uh, the new Facebook uh, baseball promotions? The, there, there's these commercials that they have where it's like 
uh, a dad take his daughter to her first baseball game. And it's it's a young girl at the end of the day. And it's this entire like Facebook chat type thing. Over the yeah, weekend, I did, I did, yeah, yeah I saw it, it, we're seeing that be promoted. And I'm not to put Facebook in this, but that that's a promotion Facebook's doing. And the only thing the MLB has as a promotion right now is line drives, foul balls, duck and cover. So it's not working out well for the MLB on that side. Especially when attendance is already down. The netting's not going to hurt attendance. Okay, with that, brings us to our dude and dunce of the week and beard back. So we look back in sports history on June 3rd. We're already in June. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It is scary thinking about the time and how fast the year goes. All right. So with that in mind, 1925, Eddie Collins is the sixth player in the MLB to get to his 3,000th hit. As well, in 1932, Lou Derrick is the first to hit four consecutive home runs. He's lost to the Yankees in that game 20-13. to 13. We've got a few other ones. I'll give you a Met one. How about that, Jose? Oh, yeah. The New York Mets draft Daryl Strawberry. I think that worked out well for the Mets. And we'll go with our last one. Or two. I'll give him two left. Uh, Expo's pitcher Pedro Martinez' perfect game is broken up in the tenth inning, as Montreal won one to nothing. I think it was the second time ever perfect game was taken into extra innings. And 2018 Golden State's Warriors guard Steph Curry breaks Ray Allen's NBA Finals record for the most three pointers with nine in the Warriors' 19-point game two win. Over Cleveland. He's already got the NBA record for most three-pointers in the playoffs for a career, I believe. He passed that this year, didn't he? And he did it I like, believe so. Yeah, he did that like so early on in the playoffs. He just shatters every three-point record. Sitting. <laughs> Him and probably Clay will be number one and number two by the end of their careers easily. All right. And our dude of the week is going to the bots in match that we had over this past week. And it is, I think, what is it? Andy Ria, uh, Ruiz Jr. is the new heavyweight champion after knocking out Anthony Joshua. And you know, for those that haven't seen the fight, the only thing you have to see is the physical appearance of both these men. In which most people are going to go, I'm going with Joshua's going to win. But it was Andy Ruiz Jr. pulled up one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. Not the biggest, but one of the biggest as far as Vegas is concerned. Uh, one of the biggest upsets where all the money was not on Andy Ruiz Jr. So it really was more where people lost. And he is our dude of the week. And with that, Jose, who claims the dunce of the week? Well, the dunce of the week is the guy that got knocked out by Andy Ruiz. It's Anthony Joshua. All the respect in the world to Ruiz. I don't like that people are kind of just, you know, pinning this on Joshua alone. 
I think Ruiz is a tremendous technical boxer. He's a very good fighter, so credit to him. But again, like you said, a lot of people had Anthony Joshua winning this fight. This was Anthony Joshua's U.S. debut after fighting for many years in the U.K. And Anthony Joshua has a lot of verbal beef with some of the other heavyweight boxers in the world, like Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. And they were already talking about, yeah, Wilder and Fury could be next after he beats Ruiz. They were already planning for future fights, and he did not come through. You failed in your U.S. debut to a guy that no one never heard of. And again, no disrespect to Ruiz, man. You earned that paycheck. You earned those titles. You earned those belts. But Anthony Joshua, come on, man. You can't look like that and then lose to a guy like that. That's just not how it works, man. you give me the excuse to not go to the gym. So thank you, Anthony Joshua, at the same time. But you're also the dunce of the week for not getting a job done. Oh, I never feel like I want to attend a gym ever. Oh, no. That, I'm that, just the way I am. Andy, you hear that, Mom? Yeah. Andy Ruiz Jr., like, the way he looks, ladies, that's it. That, that's all that it should be. <laughs> I, I want the physical appeal as that. And, and it's really got to be fat guy season at this point because... Dad bods for life. Yeah, seriously. What was the biggest thing about the... One of my favorite things about the Avengers? Thor's body. So, so this is just, you know, burgers and fries all day <laughs> and milkshakes. So I, I, I'm loving this idea. Uh, final thoughts for me on the podcast. I'm giving it to not a sports thing, but it does talk about a sports gambler. Uh, Jeopardy's James, hoping I pronounced this right, Holzhauer, uh, streak has come to an end. He won 32 straight, I think, he at that point. Second most all-time. And just missed Ken Jennings by 52,000 for the record of 2.5 million for the most on Jeopardy winnings. Uh, look, th- this guy really changed what I think Jeopardy is as far as how players are going to play when it comes to you know going on Jeopardy now. Uh, I think he changed a lot of it. Uh, created a name for himself just inside of like you know gamblers, and uh, I think a lot of people were also consider he wanted to be part of like a GM for sp- uh, sports teams, especially baseball. Uh, I think there's a lot more consideration after a guy destroys Jeopardy like he did, but he he certainly made me have to watch Jeopardy at times. He certainly made me want to see how he was still winning, how close he was to it. But this guy dominated Jeopardy. He's got the top 16 highest winning totals in a single day. Uh, It's unfortunate to see him lose. I would have loved to have seen him win this streak. The only upsetting factor to this is, obviously shows like this is pre-recorded. And... After everyone did so well at not talking about the Avengers movie for at least over a week, this broke out in like hours. So it's kind of interesting how people, you know, gave the respect to the Avengers, but not to Jeopardy at all. Uh, So that's my final thoughts on this podcast. Jose, any final thoughts on your side? Uh, just today's the baseball draft and, um, you know, it always reminds me, remember there were 26 other picks before, um, Mike Trout was chosen. 
Um, 26 other teams made a huge mistake, including the Yankees, who um, actually, and funny story about this, actually, Nick, I was going to write an article for Rising Apple about who did the Mets choose um, instead of Mike Trout that year. Not only did the Yankees give the Angels their pick for when they signed Mark Teixeira, and that was the pick that they chose Mike Trout with, but the pick before that was supposed to be the Mets pick. Now, the Mets did not make that pick because they had to give it to the Angels, who eventually drafted Randall Grichuk. Not important. What's important is, is who the Mets signed because they had to give up that draft pick. They signed Francisco Rodriguez, yes, K-Rod, and because of it, they had to give the draft pick to the Angels. So not only did the Mets and K-Rod, I mean, ideally you can say it didn't work out his time in New York, but they were also forced to give up a draft pick, which would have been the pick before Mike Trout, which I'm not saying the Mets would have been smart enough to pick Mike Trout, but at least they would have had a chance. So all in all, don't be dumb on draft day. But easier said than done. Yeah, it's it's not easy. And, and the MLB draft is one of those things where it's like the number it's a giant one, wild card. Yeah, the number one is not a guarantee. The number one in the NFL, the number one in the NBA is normally a guarantee. For for the MLB, Ken Griffey Jr. was the first number one pick in a draft to make the Hall of Fame. That that happened just recently. Well, he's been in the Hall of Fame, what, two years now? Yep. Yeah. He got drafted a long time ago. So so the number one isn't always a guarantee, even though the Baltimore's draft pick, he looks real good. He looks like he's ready to dominate baseball. Was intentionally watched with the bases loaded. <laughs> that, that's, that's when you know you're hitting well. <laughs> but he, no, he looks good, but there's no guarantees when it comes to baseball. And Nolan Arenado, I think, was a second rounder. Hey, the list goes on. Howard Pools was taken like I mean, what the 40th or something. Mookie Betts fifth round. Uh, Piazza, Piazza was its was the latest draft pick to ever make the Hall of Fame. And he was drafted as a favor, so he wasn't even really wanted at the time. Yeah, he was never wanted by anybody. But so the so the draft will be interesting. We all won't know who gets drafted, and we all won't see them for like four or five years. But. There's no guarantees, and there's a lot of guys in the back ends of the drafts that so matter. And there's also a lot of veterans the Mets could trade this pick for if we want to take on another bad contract. Just saying. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Always a good possibility. Th- that's got to stop. Guys got to at least play in the minors a few years before anybody can trade them. There's got to be a rule to that. Well, there is a rule. Remember Trey Turner? Well, Dansby Swanson, I never played a minor league game or something. But he was with the organization for over a year, which is uh, that's the that's the cutoff. The cutoff is you need to be with the organization for over a year, or they might have changed it because of Trey Turner. Because Trey Turner was forced to play for a Padres minor league system when he was technically Washington National property. He wasn't allowed to go to Washington until the anniversary of him being drafted. Huh. Which is weird because it created a dilemma. Because if you're the San Diego Padres, you're like, well. We kind of want to put our guy at shortstop to get reps. But also, if you're the Nationals, you also just don't want Trey Turner sitting there. So then what do you do? That's a strange one. That is strange. But it's true. It happened. 
Probably worth a Google. (laughs) Well, speaking of baseball, we will be talking a lot of baseball on our podcast episode 53. uh, That will be coming up probably next week. Uh, We'll go over who our early MVP favorites are, who our early Cy Youngs are, some of our biggest disappointments, and it won't all be the Mets, I promise. And some of our uh, biggest surprises to start off the year. As always, check out all the different podcasts on the SND Podcast channel as well. Thank you so much for listening to Saras on the Beard Podcast, episode 52.